morning, El Paso Bible Church, and welcome to the service. I'm going to uh, make, give you some announcements. Uh, if you don't have a bulletin, please get one out there. It's uh, got a lot of good information. And uh, just a couple of things I want to point out. The uh, church lunch for March will be on the 19th, so it's a potluck, and you're all welcome. And uh, then on March the 11th at five or 6 p.m., the men's triple B uh, here at El Paso Bible Church, and it's an outing for the men, and uh, do a little bit of grilling and uh, great fellowship. And the rest of the announcements that uh, the activities here at El Paso Bible Church, and you can also go on the web and uh, look up El Paso Bible Church and get those announcements there. So, um, reading from, um, yes, was Acts, and it's uh, chapter 5. Reading from verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of do doing such a thing? You have not lied to men. But to God, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young, man, young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for your word. For you speak to us so that we may know and obey. And Father, we thank you for our pastor and the message you've placed on his heart today and every day. And we thank you for him and his family. And Father, we know there are those that are suffering in many ways, either financially or um, medically and health-wise. Father, we, we just pray that you be with them, lift them up and let them keep their eyes on Jesus. For our hope is in you. And Father, again, we thank you for the blessings of this day. We pray that those that are traveling, that you provide journeying mercies for them, and those that couldn't be here because of illness, that you would touch them and heal them. For we pray these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Would you stand with us for a time of worship?
blind man and the beggar, grace wins for always and forever. Grace wins for the lost held on the street. Grace wins for the worst part of you and me.
Your presence is an open door. So come now, Lord, like never
Well, good morning. If y'all are doing well today, before I dismiss the kids to Children's Church, I'd like to mention uh, that we have a baptism service coming up on April 2nd, which is Palm Sunday, which is, you know, the, I like to do it on Palm Sunday. Um, lots of scriptural record about, uh, about the nature of, of that day, and I, I think it's fitting. But on April 2nd, we're going to have a a baptism, and at El Paso Bible Church, it's not an onerous process, but generally speaking, we do like to talk to people uh, about the baptism ahead of time. If you'd like to be baptized, and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you haven't been baptized since, we'd like for you to take that opportunity uh, to be baptized, and it'll be in the morning service, so you don't even have to come to an extra service. See how convenient it is. I mean, that's what we, how we roll here. It's all about convenience. Not really, but it will be moderately convenient in that regard. Um, so we will have that on April 2nd. So if you haven't been baptized since you trusted in Christ and you would like to be, uh, let us know in the office. Okay? Children, if you'd like to be baptized, talk to your parents first. That would be a good first step. Don't just come straight to me because I'll tell you better. Go back to your parents. Okay? But anyway, so children, now you can go uh, to Children's Church if that's where you're headed today. And I would also like to remind us that our triple B is actually a triple B-Y-O-B, B-B-B. Uh, you know, uh, you bring in everything. You're bringing your own thing to drink, your brew, your beef, and your Bible. Um, you can bring anything that you want to eat, but if you try to grill celery, I can't guarantee that you won't be ribbed a little, all right? So, I mean, you make your own choices, but there's consequences, yes? So, you bring whatever you want to bring to cook, bring your own drink, bring your own Bible, and we'll have a good time. 
uh, and that's on the 11th, which is a week from yesterday, as I, as I read it. If I've made a mistake, somebody let me know now. But next, this coming Saturday is when I'm planning on having the grills hot, so you all come. Um, all right, I think that's everything that I needed to clarify. Uh, but we're here in First John, we're getting to the, the tail end. Actually, it should be, it's just 16 to 17, I'm not sure. A little typo there. We're going to do two verses today as we get near the end of this book. And to be honest, these verses cause all sorts of problems for people uh, theologically. So we're going to, we need to take our time as we go through it, I think. Um, and probably some of y'all are still going to make weird faces at me. Um, and that's okay. I'm used to it. Most people think I'm making a weird face at them all the time, but it is, you know, just my face. Um, but I can usually tell when y'all are making weird faces at me. But in First John, remember that we're talking about uh, fellowship, right? And that's very clear. We, we did distinguish, right, that we have the purpose statement in the right spot for an epistle in First John. The purpose statement in a letter, generally speaking, is in the first few verses right after the salutation, right after the Paul the Apostle or John the Apostle, all of those things, the introductions, and then there's a purpose statement. And that is what we have in First John. First John has fellowship there as a mechanism, an instrument, even an agent, if you will, of receiving fullness of joy in our lives. So it's not just a standalone. It's not just something that you have just because you want to have it, right? It's not just a shiny, right? Yes? Some of you probably have something that you have simply because you want it. I may or may not have a firearm or two like that, that I just wanted. I just wanted it. I didn't need another one in that caliber. I didn't need another one to fill that slot, but I did want it. So I got it. It doesn't really have an extra purpose, right? But fellowship does have a purpose in your life. Fellowship is the key to fullness of joy, which is something that we need on a daily basis, right? We need uh, all of the influences uh, in our society, in our context. Uh, Sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes even within your own church, can be things that may potentially rob you of joy in your life. And so we need to know things, right? We need to know how to remediate it when it's broken, right? So John doesn't want us to be without um, the ability to come out from under the experience of discipline in our lives uh, when we sin. Uh, He tells us how to build it up when we have it. Um, because it is a process. It's not a declaration, right? So we talk about the nature of justification. It's by grace through faith in a moment in time by God's declaration. At that moment, you receive a gift, eternal life. You receive something that you can never be severed from, your identity. No more than you can remove the DNA from the cells in your body can you be removed from your identity in Christ from that moment forward. But that is not the way that John describes fellowship. The, the process here. It is something that can be built up. It's something that can be torn down. It is something that can be um, a tremendous blessing in your life, it, you, but you can lie about it. I mean, it can, it's, it's variable in your life. And one of the things that we've tried to emphasize, and actually we try to emphasize everywhere, is that you really, 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 really seriously, you, you and I have to avoid habituating ourselves to accept contradictions right? Contradictions when we read and when we make theological statements. One of the most common is that you should preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. 
That's a contradiction. Don't say that in front of me unless you want me to snicker because you don't understand what preaching is if you think you can do it without words. Besides the fact, we're not even sure who said that. The other one that comes up a lot is that salvation is free, but it'll cost you everything you have. Malarkey, cheap chicken baloney. Salvation is free. Stop. Full stop. Justification is free. Your identity is free. What Christ substituted for you is free. Full stop. Following Christ as his disciple may, in fact, cost you your life. But whether you do that or not does not affect whether you receive the free gift. And so we need to understand, right, because a lot of people come to 1 John and make this a statement about justification. They say, I don't care if it's a process. That's justification. No, it's not. Because by definition, justification is not a process. It's a punctiliar event that is completed in a point in time. It doesn't alter. It doesn't vacillate. It doesn't change. It doesn't shift. It doesn't alter. It doesn't transition, to use a modern word, right? It doesn't do that. And to say it does is to improperly declare a contradiction. So don't do that. Yeah? You can't, we could go through the number of lists of things that the news tells you these days, that social media tells you these days, that you must habituate as a contradiction, right? You must habituate to this. This is just the new life. This is just the way the world works. Well, if we can't even get people to stop doing that in the Bible, how are we supposed to expect them to do it in society, right? You need to be able to recognize contradictions in your mind and be able to state clearly, guys, in people's arguments, the king has no clothes on, right? That's a contradiction. That's not truth. So, we identify the topic, fellowship. Within that context of the subject of 1 John, he gives us things that we can know. He gives us evidences that we can know about certain things about it within the context of fellowship. That's the other thing, right? There is one evidence of your justification, only one. There is only one basis for you to have assurance of your eternal life, period, at all. Do I believe in Jesus Christ or not? And when somebody asks you, how do you know? That's your answer. Any other answer is false. Any other answer, answer is unreliable. If you say, because I give this amount of money or I go to church two out of four Sundays, or I do this or that, that has no bearing on whether you know you have eternal life. Not how nice you were. Not how many people like you. Not how many roles you've been registered on for church membership your whole life. There is one answer. And I want you to know as your pastor, that's the answer I give. I'm not telling you to do something that I don't do. I've been preaching in churches, serving the Lord full time for about... What is it now? 14, 15 years. I've been doing it part-time for 20 years. Volunteer before that. And I do not feel comfortable pointing to my vocation, my service, anything. To try to add proof to what God has already proved. What Christ has already proved. What he has already given me.
but he gives us evidences of things within the context of fellowship, within the context of things that can shift and alter, that are contingent upon things that we do in our life. Uh, we can know, we can know that the Father and the Son loves us. We can know that He has bestowed a great love upon us because we know that we have a gift of eternal life. That's the basis upon which we know that He loves us. You can know that. You can know that you love God the way He says to be loved. Did you know that? You can know that you love God. You know, the world says that you, uh, you have to accept any definition of love out there, right? Who are you to say who I can love and how I love them? Well, no offense, but I don't have to. I mean, <laughs> there's a whole lot of things in the world that I, will, I am not willing to permit to be encompassed into the definition of love. And God does not require you to do that. God says that you know that you love me if you keep my commandments. Jesus said something along the same lines, the one who loves me keeps my commandments. You can know that. And it's not dependent, and here's the kicker, it's not dependent on the person's reaction. I don't know if you've seen those videos of people trying to tell them a group of people wearing hats in the shapes of certain private parts on their heads, telling them Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, literally screaming like a crowd, a, a multitude of demons, I think, screaming at them hateful things. Who is being loving? The one telling them about Jesus. The one telling them about Jesus. It's not dependent on their reaction. Nothing to do with it at all. But you can know that you're loving God and that you're loving people by keeping His commandments. We can know that we're overcoming the world. In fact, we can know that by virtue of who we are in Jesus Christ. We can know that for sure. It allows us to understand the evidence. Understanding that the one who desires to live a godly life in this world will be persecuted, Scripture says. Allows you to examine the evidence with the correct perspective, which is important, right? We can know how to test teachers by their teaching, right? And that's the proper understanding of the parable of the fruits, right? When Jesus says, you shall know them by their fruit, he's not talking about knowing whether you're going to heaven when you die. He's talking about knowing which teachers to listen to. He says, you will know false prophets by their fruits. John says something similar. You will know the spirit of the Antichrist by the way that they teach. If they neglect to confess Christ or they confess an unbiblical Christ, then you don't heed their teaching because the fruit is bad in Jesus' terms. The fruit is bad. So you can know who to listen to. And we can know God to grow in our intimacy with Him. We can know all sorts of things in this context. But last week, perhaps the most important thing that John says that we can know, we can know, 1 John 5, 13, that believing we have eternal life. We can know that. 
And we mentioned you shouldn't go back all the way to every test of everything in the book because John gives us in the context how it is that we know that we have eternal life. The one who has the Son has the life. You get the Son by grace through faith, not by your behavior. You can know that you have eternal life by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And John, there are lots of applications, right? But John made a particular application to that truth. And the application that he was made was to your prayer life. There's lots of other applications, lots of other things for which that's significant, certainly. But in this context of fellowship, in 1 John, the application was you can have confidence in what you pray for. You can have confidence in what you pray for. That's the advantage that you have, that whatever you ask according to the will of the Father, you will receive. You can rely on that because of the benefit of your eternal life that you possess, and that you can know that. Some people react kind of strongly to that idea. First of all, they ask, um, if it's God's will, why am I praying for it? Well, that's about you, right? You recognizing what God's will is and getting on the wagon, right? You're not bending God's arm to make him do something. Um, and why should I pray if God is not going to give me what I ask for is the other question of all the narcissistic garbage you can hear coming out of people's mouth. But it's common. You've probably asked the same question yourself. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Please don't. You're, some of y'all are on video, right? The backs of your heads. But they'll get your hand. Don't raise your hand now. Why should I pray if God's not going to give me what I ask for? Well, there's a very simple answer to that, doofus. You don't want what isn't according to God's will. Mind blown, right? You simply don't want what isn't according to God's loving, gracious will for his children in your life. You don't want it. And God in his gracious sovereignty has deemed that he will not give it to you. If you being good know how to give your children good gifts, Jesus says. God is holy. He only gives good gifts according to his will. The corollary to that, I think, that we can say is that if we ask for something that is not according to God's will, he doesn't give it to us. That's at least equally assuring, right? Y'all have prayed for some stupid stuff. I'm probably not the only one in the room. Yeah? Stupid, unwise, foolish things that I've prayed for. And then I end up thanking God that he didn't give me what I asked for later. It's a nice corollary to that principle. But how do we apply that benefit? So that's the application. One application. One out of many, many, many applications. We know we have eternal life, therefore we know that we have an audience with God. And we have confidence that he will give to us what we request of him according to his will. And that he won't give us something that's not according to his will. So how do we apply that? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin to death or unto death, 
He shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. If anyone sees his brother, we ought to clarify this yet again, perhaps for the thousandth time. Who in 1 John has a brother? One person got it right. A believer has a brother. Only believers have brothers. In 1 John, this will fix all sorts of problems for you in 1 John. Getting the second person plural pronouns correct and getting the terms for familial relationships correct. All of a sudden, 1 John becomes very, very lucid, very, very clear. You can discern exactly what it's saying if you will get those two things right. Because earlier in the book we have said, right, an unbeliever can hate a believer, and many do. But an unbeliever cannot hate his brother because he doesn't have one. An unbeliever does not have a brother in Christ, a spiritual sibling, period. So the relationship that's being regulated is between two siblings. Right? You may have an imaginary friend. You may even have an imaginary brother, but if he doesn't exist, you don't hate a real thing. Right? Same way that an unbeliever can see some things that a believer does, but an unbeliever cannot see his brother sinning. This is regulating a familial relationship. So if we see our brother, our believing sibling, sinning, sinning specifically not unto death. Now this is where people get <clears throat> let their theology drive them to say some stupid things because they don't understand death. They want death to mean all the things that death means in Scripture when they read it in 1 John. That, folks, is what we call illegitimate totality transfer. That's a big word that says that your word has a meaning in context, and it doesn't mean all the things in all the contexts. Does that make sense? When I say my motor is running, do I mean that it's bipedal and it's putting one foot in front of the other? And it's running every time I say my motor is running? I'm looking for an answer, folks. It does not transform the motor into being a biped when I say my motor is running. And every time I say something is running, I don't mean the way the motor is running, circular in a rotation, and I don't mean bipedal movement. I could say that the church is running well, and it is. Y'all are doing great, by the way. Well, that means something else. All of those things don't belong in all the contexts. Illegitimate totality transfer is a means by which people habituate to contradictions in the text, by the way. So we're not going to do that. We already talked about that at length. We're not going to permit ourselves to be habituated to contradictions because God doesn't do that in the Bible. So if you see your brother sinning not unto death, what death is he talking about? Don't insert an unbeliever here. Don't insert a lake of fire here. Don't insert going to hell when they die. Don't insert all of those things. There is, okay, there is no sin that an unbeliever commits that does that. Just like there is no good work that you can do, no behavior that you can engage in that gives you spiritual life. 
Those are two realities that are not possible. An unbeliever dead in his trespasses and sins is still dead in his trespasses and sins no matter what sins he commits. And he is still dead in his trespasses and sins no matter what good works he does. Because the way you pass from death into life is by trusting in Christ. No amount of behavior can change his deadness. This death is the only kind of death that a believer is susceptible to. And you know what that is, yeah? The kind you go to the funerals for. The kind where, well, I mean, sometimes we have an urn, sometimes we have a casket, sometimes they donate their bodies to science. But we know that, right? The synapses stop firing. The heart stops beating. The lungs stop creating a vacuum to suck in air for people to breathe. Their circulatory system stops and their battery is just dead. They're dead. That's the kind of death. That's the only kind of death that a believer is susceptible to, isn't it? Your motor wears out. We remind ourselves of this truth at those funerals, right? One of the most common passages that we refer to is out of the Gospel of John, verse, uh, verse 25 of chapter 11. And there Jesus says explicitly, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me shall live even if he dies. The one who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Even if his body flops over and he's just a carcass in the dirt. His meat suit stops moving. He shall live even if he dies. I'm, by the way, I can legitimately use the word carcass. Yahweh uses the word carcass back in Deuteronomy, and you would know that if you came to Sunday school. <laughs> he refers to bodies falling over as carcasses among his covenant people as a judgment and a discipline on them for disobedience. It's physical death. That's the only kind that a believer, a brother, is susceptible to experience because he lives even if he dies. The synapses stop firing, the heart stops pumping, lungs stop breathing. And believers can sin like that. They can sin. Well, they can sin in ways that bring an end to their temporal lives quickly. We're not to that point yet. But they can sin in ways that don't do that immediately. They can sin in ways that don't immediately cost them their lives, but still bring bondage, the bondage of sin in their lives. That they lose the freedom that they have in Christ because of their sin. Experientially, right? It doesn't affect your identity. And John says, when you see a brother sinning like that, that is an evidence of sometimes what Scripture calls a besetting sin. A besetting sin is something that entangles you. It doesn't kill you. It trips you. Right? That's bondage. If you fall up the stairs going to in the plane, it trips you over. It didn't kill you. Right? It didn't kill anybody. I'm I'm clumsy. Right? I know what tripping feels like. 
besetting sin. He says, if you see a brother sinning like that, you see somebody that's not sinning unto death, you ought to pray for him. You ought to do that. You ought to pray for that brother. You ought to pray for them. That's the only instruction, by the way, in this passage. There's a lot that that doesn't say, right? It doesn't say text your pastor about that sin you saw somebody commit. I don't want to hear it. That's God's child, not mine. It's not my job to spank him. First five or six years of our marriage, you know, we had four little kids at home, probably longer than that. That's all I felt like I did was go to school, go to work, and spank kids. I don't need to borrow more of that. Don't text your pastor. Don't uh, get in their face. Uh, gossip about them, confront them, indict them. All that's not there. Now, there, is a, there are times where the leadership of a local body is, is instructed to confront and deal with sin, particularly sin that is capable of causing harm to the body. We're not saying that, but we're talking about individual. When you see a brother sinning, your first reaction is not to text your pastor or post to Twitter a video, right, of them. You live in a surveillance state, by the way. The government doesn't even have to do it for you to live in a surveillance state. Everything you do, you can't pick your nose without being on social media, or at least potentially being on social media. Friends, if you see your brother doing that, you shouldn't act in a way that is destructive to them. Really, I could extend that to anybody. You really shouldn't act in a way that's destructive to anybody if you see them sinning. But specifically to your brother in Christ, you should not act in a way that potentially destroys them by propagating and publishing evidence of their sin. You should pray for them. When we intercede for our brother... John says that God, for the sake of your intercession, and this is the power that you have as a brother and sister in Christ, someone with a spiritual sibling for him to pray, for the sake of your prayer, says God will restore him to life, give him life, a life of freedom from the bondage that that sin provides. That's how I read that, right? A very valid way of understanding the nature of life, right? All the way back into the Old Testament, God promises Israel that if you keep these things by them, you shall live. And he doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven when you die because of your behavior, even in the Old Testament. What he means is that you're going to live a life of blessing and abundance and freedom. He's not going to tell them. We know this because when he pronounces the curse on them, they're still alive. They're alive enough to suffer the consequences of their disobedience. The life versus death scenario under the law has nothing to do with their spiritual life or spiritual death. It has to do exactly with their temporal life and experience. And that doesn't go away in the New Testament. That is one of the concerns of much of the epistles' material. Pray for them. Don't do all the other things your flesh says that they need. Please. Pray for them. So they can be restored in freedom of fellowship. And I'm going to just say, people get their knickers in a twist about a lot of things that aren't sins. 
Most of the time when somebody gets to the point of coming to me about some brother's sin, I'm like, that's not a sin. So two problems. Don't come to me about it and read the Bible more. Find out what's actually a sin. Right? The number one sin in Scripture, as I see it, is actually division. That's the one that really brings judgment on someone, is denounced most regularly. We're not going to go through the list of all the things that aren't sins, but let me just say most of the things that I was told were sins growing up, even in a pretty solid Baptist church, don't fit the bill. They're not sin. But that doesn't surprise you. Right? That's not shocking necessarily that your pastor would tell you that you ought to pray for brothers in Christ. No? If that's your shocked face, you need to elevate it because I can't tell. Right? That's not your shocked face? Okay, good. I'm glad you're not shocked by your pastor telling you to pray for brothers in Christ. That would be a little bit shocking for me. And this is my shocked face. Like you wouldn't be able to tell. Uh, pastors that have been doing this a long time, that's one of their number one things. Just don't let them see your jaw drop, Josh, or whoever. Just don't let them do it. Don't let them know you caught them off guard. You, you're, you have to be unshockable to do this for a vocation. Um, and I'm not totally unshockable, but I'm trying. But that doesn't surprise you. The next one, though, this one makes people itchy. Actually, that was one of the cool parts of Deuteronomy this morning. Is God pronounces like judgment on the people of Israel for disobedience. And he, he pr- literally, you thought that VeggieTales was, uh, was off, the, off out on a limb when they had the island of perpetual tickling. You remember the island of perpetual tickling? God literally says to Israel, you're going to have a perpetual itch. You're going to be itchy as long as you're outside covenant protection. There, for you and your sons after you, a perpetual itchiness, right? But this makes people itchy, but I'm hoping we can resolve the itch. Hopefully this isn't a perpetual itchiness for you and your sons after you for the days of your life. Because people do, they get upset about it. Remember though, right, we're talking about two things, right? The relationship between siblings, brothers. We're talking about a sin that they have committed, not their theological status as a sinner, somebody who's dead in their trespasses and sins, but actions that they can commit. And we're talking about the only kind of death that a believer can experience ever. Everybody understand that? Everybody just go like this if you understand that. Okay, most of you that bother to actually listen to that uh, understanding. So, John says in the same verse, there's a sin leading to death. There is a sin that leads to death. And I do not say that he should make a request for this. Now again, we, we understand that there are certain behaviors that are likely to result in your immediate demise, right? Recently in El Paso, you've, you've been keeping track of the, the teenager criminal spree <laughs> You would have read one in which a 17-year-old foolish young man pointed a gun at a cop. Pointed a gun at a cop. Now, where I'm from, we call that suicide by cop. 
I have a high degree of respect for that police officer for taking him into custody instead of shooting him. I will not give you that same discretion, folks. You point a gun at me, I will do everything I can to put you down. But the cop didn't. He took him into custody. But that kind of behavior is likely, right, it's a crime. Not everything that is a crime is a sin. I can say, though, that that's a crime and a sin, right? That one's likely to kill you. But it's likely to kill you because that is the consequence of that behavior. And that's not the only category in Scripture. But it is one thing that will end your life quickly. This is something that you can observe somebody doing, that you have time to observe. And not necessarily something that is done to you. You're a third party, right? If I see a brother committing a sin that leads to death, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's committing it against me. It means that I'm a third party observing this thing. And that's the same context. That's the same verse. If you see him doing that, then you're not supposed to, I mean, well, at least John says, he doesn't say you're not supposed to pray for it, but he says, I'm not going to command you to do it. You could pray for it. I don't know if it's going to do any good. But I don't think John is referring directly to something that death is the natural consequence for. Physical death. I think it's something that God brings into that life as a discipline of his children. Now, that's why people get itchy. Because they have an understanding of God's discipline that doesn't include that category. Uh, But the Bible does. I don't care what your theology allows. (laughs) Because if your theology doesn't allow that category, you need to make it more biblical. Okay? I mean, that's, that's just the reality. That's how we operate. And that's why, as a pastor, I get away with some, saying something like, yeah, I don't care what you believe. Uh, I just care what the Bible says, what it teaches. Because the biblical precedent is that there is supernatural discipline that is applied or will potentially be applied up to this point in the believer's life, and it will result in physical death. Now, remember... Jesus says, for the believer, he will live even if he dies. This is not a determination of their eternal state. It does not alter the status of their justification. It does not take back the free gift of eternal life. It is a judgment on somebody's temporal life. These are all believers. This is a brother you're observing when this happens. And God is sovereign over the discipline of his children. You know, it would be foolish to say, I saw somebody committing a sin to death, and so I executed him. No. (laughs) That is not your responsibility. Remember, you're a third party in the position to pray or not to pray. This is not self-defense. He is sovereign. And in some cases, it seems like that child's testimony or the damage that he does to his other children and the testimony of his covenant community or the church two different categories because it's Old Testament and New Testament record that talks about this is so severely damaging that as a loving father he says come home and that's what it is it is now time for you to come home
I can point you to some examples. The one portion which we read this morning, Bill read it, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts. It's, it's important to understand the details of that record, right? People get a little bit, you can tell how many, how, how money-oriented people are by how they interpret that story. The issue wasn't that Ananias couldn't have just given a portion of the proceeds of the property. The issue was that he wanted the credibility, he wanted the honor, the reputation for having given all of the money to the church, and so he lied about it and said he did it and didn't do it. He lied to the Holy Spirit, is what Peter says. Um, Peter did not strike him. Peter did not even say, thus you shall die today. If you remember the record, Ananias died. Now, lest you think that he was just in bad health, he drank too much beer and ate too many Cheetos and watched too much TV or whatever. Um, that happened twice. Sapphira comes in. And Peter says, As, look, the people who are carrying your husband's body out the door are here. And they're going to carry you out likewise. Nobody touched anybody except to carry their corpse out of the presence of the apostles. That was damaging to the testimony of the body of Christ. How is that so? Well, I mean, it would probably depend on how he used the proceeds that he kept back. But that reputation, that testimony was damaged for the local body, and there was discipline applied that ended up in his physical death. Sometimes it's actual, sometimes it's potential. Uh, the church at Corinth was commanded to put out, remember the guy who's sleeping with his stepmom? We've referenced that a few times. Um, Paul tells the church of Corinth, put that person out of your body for the destruction of his flesh. Put him out. That's what's going to happen. He's going to die. Put him out. Peter seems to indicate to Simon Magus, this one also makes people itchy because he's a dirty dog, isn't he? Simon the magician, he wants to buy the apostolic gifts. No believer would do that. Well, guys, y'all got to fix your theology here because the Bible says right before that, even Simon Magus believed. By definition, he's a believer. He just happens to be a dirty dog, immature believer when he tries to buy the apostolic gifts. And Peter says to that dirty dog, immature believer in the flesh, may all your goods and all your wealth perish with you. Now, we don't know if he died after that. We're not told. But Peter understood the category was potentially going to be applied in his case because he would bring shame and disgrace to the nature of the apostles who were exercising the gift who had received it freely from Jesus Christ. And Peter at least seems to think he may have done that. Even in the Old Testament, right, there are some References to this within, we would say, within the covenant community, right? The sons of Judah. You, you understand, uh, back then there was this principle of Levirate marriage. 
um, people, brothers, were obligated. If their brother passed away before they had produced an heir with their wife, their brother was obligated to take the wife and produce an heir and give him his father's name. Obligated. Uh, we've been talking about this throughout the Torah as we've been going through Sunday school as to the rationale for that. I won't stop and do that again. You can listen to those recordings if you're interested. Um, but in Judah's son's case, his son, Er, not E-R-R, but you might as well be E-R-R, right? Because he made a profound error. His name was Er, E-R. And the scripture just says he was wicked and the Lord slew him. Lord slew him. And then his brother Onan refused to raise an heir up for his brother, and the Lord also slew him. Took his life. These are all believers, as I understand it. Scripturally, I don't see any reason to doubt when Luke writes that Sam and Magus, for instance, believed that he wasn't a believer. And, I mean, I hesitate to ask if you think that's warranted because I actually don't care. But that's, you understand where I'm going, right? Where I'm from? You can disagree, but you're going to be wrong. Simon Magus was a believer. <laughs> the man in 1 Corinthians put him out that his life might be destroyed the reason for that was because he was a believer in the local body and it was a, a shame to the name of Christ what he was doing. They all resulted, uh, received a supernatural temporal discipline that was including their physical death. Uh, and really that's, I mean, that's not up for discussion, really. Like there are certain things that people come to me and, and want to ask about. A lot of them over the years have been out of 1 John. If somebody doesn't want to acknowledge the purpose statement of 1 John in the first few verses of the chapter, I don't bother talking to them after that. If you can't understand that brother is a reference to believer in Jesus Christ, then I don't bother talking to you about it. I'm not going to argue about it. My life is too short. If you don't want to agree that Scripture says that Simon Magus was a believer, then I don't bother talking to you anymore about it, really. Because that's what the Scripture says. It's not subject to my opinion or your opinion. And I'm not obligated to validate your opinion by discussing it at length. Really. You know, the clock is ticking, folks. Not just on Sunday morning. I know y'all want to go have lunch. I'm talking about my... My ticker, you know. Life is short. Choose your battles. Choose what you're going to spend your time on. So it's really not up for discussion to me that discipline that the Lord applies on his children can result in their physical death. That's the nature of sin, of that sin. He's saying you can observe that. That's observable. So I don't say to pray for that. There's, there's, whereas the benefit of you praying for someone else sinning in some other category is that for the sake of your prayer and your intercession, God will restore him from bondage. That isn't going to happen here. 
that there is a pronouncement of discipline that is absolute. Again, that doesn't alter somebody's state. Nothing alters their identity in Christ. Nothing alters their possession of eternal life, even if God strikes them to carcass status in the front of the apostles like Ananias and Sapphira. You will go to heaven when you die, and you will see Ananias and Sapphira, and you will see Simon Magus, and they will know what they were disciplined for, and they will praise Jesus because of his graciousness to them, as will you and I. Yes? You should be praising Jesus for his graciousness to you right now, because most of us are stupid enough that we could have died a hundred times already simply as a natural consequence of being a redneck, right, in my case. There have been so many times where my eyes opened where I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't expect to survive that. My kids have been much smarter about the things that they did usually. It's not a universal singular sin, however, right, in those categories. There's a bunch of different sins that are contextually dependent. God sovereignly decides when that standard has been met. But we can identify the category. It's usually something that is destructive to the testimony of God in the world, whether it's through the covenant community of Israel, whether because this brother would not allow his inheritance that was promised to God, by God to him perpetually to have an heir. And God said, that is destructive to the testimony of who I am and who Israel is. And so you're out, Onan. The church in Corinth was permitting sin in their body, the likes of which is not even seen in the pagan nations around them. It was being destructive to the local church because of that. And God said, nope, you're going to come home. Ananias and Sapphira, same thing. It's time to come home. It sounds... That's what's happening, right? He'll live even though he dies. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Verse 17, you may be asking why that exists. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. I think what he's giving us is the ratio, roughly. All unrighteousness is sin. There is a sin leading to death, the category of all versus one, right? All versus one, you would expect that all is a much bigger category, right? If we have all the Myers in, in the room, that's more Myers than one Meyer, right? They may not make more noise than me. I may make more noise than all six of them gathered together. But it's statistically and numerically more. What John is saying here is this is your expectation. Normally, when you see unrighteousness, if you see your brother committing a sin, normally the proportion is going to be your responsibility will be to pray for him, and you should expect deliverance from the bondage that that sin is in their life. You should not expect, you should not anticipate that the vast majority of sins that you observe are sins leading to death. And that fits our observation, doesn't it? Because we all sin a lot. Y'all are nice people, but you still sin a lot. I still sin a lot. And I'm still standing before you with my heart ticking and my lungs breathing and my synapses firing. So pray for me because I'm sinning, not leading to death, apparently. And so are you. So that's our primary 
normal obligation is to pray for each other. We pray often. You know, it is a tremendous blessing, and Jacob has mentioned it over and over, and it's something that I appreciate. You know, we have a church app. I don't know if you're signed up for it. You ought to be because it's very direct communication. But when we share prayer requests right after, immediately, praying, 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 almost all of those are health concerns. We should be praying also for the sins that we commit, recognizing the danger that it presents, the bondage that it presents, and the blessings of freedom from them offer, right? So we got to pray for each other in those things as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are faithful to your promises of discipline. That from the beginning to the end, that it is evidence absolutely of your faithfulness to every promise you have made, that when you promise to discipline, you do not withhold it. We know that that's crucial to our understanding of your character. And the mean, one of the means, one of the evidences by which we have full confidence in the blessings of your grace. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Dismiss with a song. For the prodigal son, for the woman at the well, for the blind man and the beggar, for always and forever, for the lost out on the street.